the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we're going to talk about an anti-poverty idea that's gaining a little steam. Universal basic income or other forms of recurring monthly support for those in need. A national group is thinking of trying it out here in Detroit. We're going to talk about that and the other examples that are unfolding around the country. We also want to hear from you, our listeners. What do you think of the idea of universal basic income? That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. When you sit down and pay your bills each month, as all of us do, do you ever think about what it would be like to have an extra $1,000 or so in your pocket? No strings attached. Just extra money to help you make ends meet. That's the question that proponents of a universal basic income, or UBI, are asking. What would that be like if more cities in America, especially cities like Detroit, where poverty grips so many of our residents? What would it be like if there were some support every month to help them get through? The idea of a basic income has been gaining traction in recent years as a potential solution to the growing income inequality we're facing in our society and the intergenerational poverty that we see really devastating cities like Detroit. It's the basic idea that every citizen, regardless of their income or employment status, should receive just a regular cash payment from the government, maybe, or another source, to cover basic needs and give some level of financial security. It's really been gaining a lot of steam lately, even helping former presidential candidate uh, Andrew Yang make his way to the Democratic Party's debate stage in 2019. America, it's great to be back on the debate stage. I'm so excited. I want to give every American $1,000 a month. (laughs) That was a really great moment during that debate. And proponents of a basic income argue that it could really reduce poverty. It would boost spending in local economies and maybe spur entrepreneurship and creativity. Critics of this idea argue It would just be too expensive. They believe it would disincentivize work and maybe hurt productivity, create more dependency on the government. And some also argue that other policy solutions like a higher minimum wage, better education and training, or even a more progressive tax system would be more affected in targeted ways to deal with long-term poverty. 
But could there be an idea that everyone would be happy with? Last month, the national nonprofit Up Together sent a letter to the mayor and the city council here in Detroit advocating for the start of a guaranteed income in the city. Instead of distributing cash to everyone, the entire population, guaranteed income, or GI, focuses on distributing cash to a specific group who are experiencing systemic challenges. But how would you define that group? How would that new proposal work? A little later, we're going to talk with Kofi Kenyatta, who is leading up together to learn about that group's proposal, how it's different from UBI, and why they think it's a really great fit for us here in Detroit. But first, to help us understand the general idea behind ideas like universal basic income, guaranteed income, and how they have worked in other communities. I'm joined by Patrick Cooney. He is the vice president of Michigan Future, which is a Michigan-based think tank. And he's also a senior advisor with Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan. Pat, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. So let's talk about uh, universal basic income, what it is, and why it seems to be gaining real momentum in in some policy discussions. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think as a lot of listeners may know, um, you know, universal basic income, though it's become more popular in recent years, um, is a pretty old idea. So, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. famously advocated for universal basic income as a form of economic justice, um, and the the conservative economist Milton Friedman argued for it as well, or a form of it, called the negative income tax, mm-hmm. which was essentially designed as a basic income, um, though with, with some differences, um, but was pretty generous with the idea being, and from Friedman's view, that, um, you know, it was a way of doing away with a lot of, with the sort of bloated and bureaucratic safety net um, that produced negative incentives to work. So it's a pretty old idea. But of course, has been has been gaining steam, um, you know, in recent years. Advanced, uh, as you mentioned, by the candidacy of Andrew Yang, um, and then there's been this kind of flurry of basic income experiments in cities across the country. I think, you know, started most notably uh, by uh, in Stockton, California, by former mayor uh, Michael Tubbs which then led to this um, Mayors for a Guaranteed Income program where we see um, you know, more than 40 of these pilots kind of happening across the country. Um, so there is, there, there's a kind of a, a deep history to, to the idea and a lot of uh, um, sort of traction to it now. The basic idea behind it though is as you said, is um, it serves as a sort of cash floor, an amount uh, that allows people to, um, to help pay for for basic expenses um, and sort of be protected from, um, you know, some of the insecurities of um, of the labor market. And the sort of most recent experience we've had with something approaching a truly universal basic income or something close to it at the national level is of course the expanded child tax credit that we had mm-hmm. in uh, the latter half of 2021 which we can talk about the evidence behind that and sort of what came out of that, yeah. um, uh, which was pretty pretty striking in terms of its effects on on poverty and on material hardship. Yeah, it was. Uh, but before we get past that point, I do want to uh, 
you know, spend some time drawing a distinction between something like universal basic income or guaranteed income. And I want to draw the distinction between those two things a little later. But, but, but between those things and something like the earned income tax credit. For instance, yeah. As you point out, the the expansion of the tax credit was a really effective way of lifting people out of poverty, of of helping uh, people, you know, make ends meet. Why would something like universal basic income be better uh, than than that? And and would it make things better, even even better? I guess for the people. Who get it, and and if that's true, why? Yeah, yeah. So you know, so right, a couple of things here. the The expanded child tax credit that um, that came out of the American Rescue Plan in 2021 was really the closest we've come to anything nationally that looked like um, a sort of unconditional cash benefit. And so, what I mean by unconditional cash benefit is that the expanded child tax credit um, part of the expansion was that it didn't depend on work. So it's different from the previous uh, child tax credit because if you had no earnings from work, you qualified. And it's different from the earned income tax credit because you, if you had no earnings from work, you still qualified. You just had to have, have children and it had pretty high income thresholds as well. So this was a marked shift from the way that uh, the United States has done traditional safety net policy really since welfare reform in the mid-90s where the, the focus was much more on working households. This was the sort of this kind of bipartisan agreement that kind of they, they came came to pass. But what we found in the past 20 years is when there was no cash safety net to speak of, essentially, and we can talk more about that, um, you know, hardships spiked and, and families really struggled. And so the expanded child tax credit got pretty close to, um, to a, a universal sort of cash allowance system. Uh, so it paid out in the latter half of 2021 uh, $300 uh, for every child under six in a household and $250 for every child between six and 18. Um, the obvious sort of gap there is that it didn't provide anything for households without children. Um, so a universal basic income, you know, the major difference there uh, would be that households without children would get um, would get a cash payment as well. Now, that's obviously a matter for policy discussions. Um, you know, if you look at the data, households with children face far higher levels of hardship than households without. So there's a justification for sort of targeting resources in that way. Um, on the other hand, you know, we know from experience that that uh, universal policies, um, you know, by and large tend to be um, some of the most politically popular ones. So is there an argument for saying we should have something that looks more like universal basic income that hits both households with children um, and those without. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Patrick Cooney. He's an economist and vice president at Michigan Future, which is a nonprofit uh, think tank. He is uh, also uh, involved with the uh, policy uh, poverty solutions at the University of Michigan. Um, we're talking about the idea of universal basic income or guaranteed income, some sort of cash payment, recurring cash payments to people to help them make ends meet. 
it is uh, an idea that's gaining a lot of steam, uh, both locally and nationally. It is uh, something that uh, has been around a long time, though, and has uh, been part of the policy debate about anti-poverty solutions uh, for a long time. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What would you think if we could get cash payments maybe to everybody, uh, or if you didn't like that idea, maybe we could get them to the people who need it the most? Uh, call and tell us what you would do if you got an extra 1000 or $1,200 per month in a program like universal basic income. How much would that make a difference in your financial life? Uh, also, give us a sense from a policy perspective if you think this is a good idea. Are you concerned maybe that it is excessive and too costly? Are you worried that it would disincentivize things like work and responsibility, something that we hear often from critics of uh, anti-poverty uh, policy solutions. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in our conversation that way. Uh, uh, Patrick, before we uh, turn to, to, to listeners, I, I want to talk a little about where this has where this has been tried and where it works and what the effects of it look like. Uh, Oakland, California, Austin, Texas, uh, there are some places outside of our country that have that have tried this. What does it look like? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, um, you're right, as you said, the, the, the sort of this is there's a flurry of pilots happening in in cities across the country. And, you know, and you're right to point out the fact that, you know, the this is um, you know, sort of different from a universal basic income, of course, because uh, it is only sort of going to a subset um, of the population. And the, the models for these kind of vary um, tremendously. And the reason, of course, that it's only going to a subset is that, you know, municipal um, budgets um, generally, you know, are, are obviously more limited. And so it can only um, uh, pay out to um, to a smaller group. But, you know, the size of these pilots range, um, you know, they, some of these pilots are um, giving cash payments to uh, hundred households over the period of 18 months or two years. Um, some reach a little higher, I think up to, you know, 500 households, perhaps um, some, I think Los Angeles maybe has the, has the largest one, which, which might go much, much further than, than that. Um, but, but by and large, it's still a, um, a relatively small group and it's, it's very time limited. Uh, so it's, you know, only over, um, a period at most, it seems like, of a couple of years. But what we can tell from these pilots, I think, reinforces a lot of what we know from um, our, our sort of the, this kind of what is a small U.S. history of universal basic income um, pilots that have occurred over the past 50 years. So there are some of these as well. So there's there's one case of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Nations in North Carolina. There's a, a casino dividend that gives um, all um, uh, people in that community um, a universal cash stipend in Alaska. There's the Alaska Permanent Fund, which gives a monthly stipend based on on, on oil revenues to, um, to everyone in the state. But by and large, when you take all these together, what you can look at, what you can see in the data is you see um, sort of great improvements in um, in people's um, sort of mental health um, and and other health outcomes. So lower reported. Um, sort of stress and um, feelings of reported, you know, symptoms of anxiety and depression, 
Um, you see less material hardship. So people are able to pay the bills more often. So are able to afford food and, um, and, and, and pay utility bills. Um, and, uh, and you see, um, you know, some improvements around employment outcomes as well in certain cases. So the employment outcomes data is a little bit muddy, but it generally points to good societal outcomes. So some people have seen from these experiments that some people might um, might cut back on hours a little bit. Um, they don't drop out of the labor force completely. These, mm -hmm. these cash benefits are not nearly enough for, to allow people to do that, but they might cut back on hours a little bit, which can be a good thing. Uh, maybe they're taking on part-time work to um, to spend more time with family, or maybe they're taking um, a little bit longer during a spell of unemployment to look for the right fit, sort of new um, and better job. Um, and again, the, the, the last piece I'll point to here is that the evidence that, that we have, I think, the most to say about is from um, the expanded child tax credit payments. Um, what we saw in 2020 and 2021, so 2021 is where we had the expanded child tax credit payments, but in 2020, there was also a lot of unconditional cash payments going to households. Mm -hmm. We saw the largest drop in child poverty uh, in the history of this country. So, uh, you know, before the pandemic, child poverty was around 12%. Um, in 2020, it dropped uh, down to about 9%. So that's in the heart of the pandemic. And then in 2021, it dropped to about 5.2%. So child poverty fell over two years by 60%. And it's not just this sort of measure of income poverty. You also see in this survey data we've been looking at over the past couple of years, you see um, sharp declines in material hardship. So people re reporting that they can sort of have enough food, have enough money to put food on the table, um, um, being able to, uh, to pay all their monthly bills. So you see these, you know, you can see in these trend lines sort of um, in real time um, as a result of these cash payments, you can see um, families being supported and families getting better. Um, and, um, and then, you know, that, that carried on through, uh, 2021 and then, and then the cash, um, the cash stopped with the, the expansion tax credit, um, was not, um, sort of renewed. Um, so we, we do see great impacts from, uh, from cash assistance. Um, um, and they're, they're pretty uniform across the range of different kind of experiments that, um, that have been tried. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about poverty solutions like universal basic income with Patrick Cooney of Michigan Future. We'll also get to you on the phones and on social. Phyllis and Warren, Robert and Vanetta in Detroit, Josh and Beverly Hills, Naeem in West, Northwest Detroit. We'll start with you if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. All 
all of us are familiar with the ritual of sitting down at the table at the end of the month, paying bills, making sure that there's enough cash for everything that we need from necessities to the things that we like. What if that process looked a little different? If there was a little more cash involved, $1,000, maybe $1,200 each month that you had because of a policy like universal basic income or guaranteed income. That's what we're talking about today. And our guest right now is Patrick Cooney. He's an economist and vice president at Michigan Future. He also uh, works with, uh, he's the assistant director of policy impact, in fact, at Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan. Uh, We are talking about this idea of universal basic income or some other form of recurring cash payments to people and whether it would lift more people out of poverty. How would it be different from things like the earned income tax credit? Uh, Would it discourage work? Would it discourage responsibility, the things that uh, we kind of expect people to be able to do on their own? Or is this just a good idea as a way of making sure that people don't suffer the kind of abject poverty that we see here in cities like Detroit, but also that intergenerational poverty that we see really taking hold in a lot of our neighborhoods. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can we can work you into the conversation. I want to start today on the phones with Vanetta in Detroit. Vanetta, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, uh, Susan's guest. Yeah, I've been looking into this for a little while, just kind of, um, just kind of from an amateur level. But there has been a book written about it. I'm, I'm sure several by um, Annie Laurie, a journalist who who wrote the book um, "Give People Money," basically mm-hmm. just talking about how universal basic income works. But my my point was to say that the unit, the government has, we have done this. We've done universal basic income during the pandemic, as um, your guest pointed out. But specifically to the gig workers who couldn't work or who, um, when our jobs were shut down, we were told to stay home and we were given um, basically a universal basic income, a supplement through the unemployment system. On top of the state, there was also a federal um, income or uh, supplement that was given through universal basic, um, through um, to everyone in the country who was a gig employee who participated. But I mean, but we've seen this, right? We've seen this um, uh, the Alaska, the Alaska state of Alaska has done something like this, mm-hmm. not from the federal government, but also from but from the oil refineries or the oil companies sure. that are drilling. It's a lot of money Alaska. in Alaska, too, by the way. I mean, I think it's yearly something like eighteen thousand dollars that uh, yeah. that yeah. residents get. Right. Yeah. But, um, but so I mean, so I, I just think that the economy can hold this. Um, it, to to your to the to your guest point, a thousand dollars is not enough to support anyone for from not working. So it would just be a supplement. And it's something I really believe we should look into as a um, as economy, especially as the automation of all of these particular jobs and, and agriculture and the manufacturing industry are are um, wrapping up. Essentially, mm-hmm. um, what will support those workers, those thousands upon thousands of workers who now will not be able to work? Yeah. And I'll take your comments off air. Vanetta, really appreciate the call and and your perspective, Patrick. I wonder if. The the disappearance of some kinds of work, uh, along with the new kind of um, uh, d- disassociation with work that we're seeing 
for some folks uh, is is a is a reason to expedite this is it or is maybe a reason that people are talking more enthusiastically about it uh, the, the the future of work i think is a, a kind of murky murky uh, input I, I think in the analysis yeah. here we don't know what, how much work there will be for some people and this kind of support might soften the blow of that yeah, I know that's I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think that the one thing we do know, you know, for for certain based on um, the past few decades of of data is, you know, we're not necessarily seeing this, uh, you know, vast uh, kind of disappearance of jobs um, uh, through um, automation and globalization. But you do see this kind of downward pressure on on wages, um, for, particularly on wages for um, for folks without a college degree and and um, folks in the kind of lower end of the the wage spectrum, and so that that can stand up as an argument for the need for these kind of universal cash supplements, and on an ongoing basis, um, sort of that this is this is something that is not something that should be thought of as a temporary boost um, to get people on their feet and on a path to economic mobility, but something that is that is sort of um, required um, uh, uh, for the government to give help to all households to provide that level of, of a sort of income floor. I mean, one thing that when you look at poverty at, in the United States and other developed nations, um, you know, if you look at before taxes and transfers, so sort of the poverty rate um, just through the, the, the market, the, the job market, um, and income from work, the U.S. doesn't look that different from a lot of other developed nations. But then when you look at a post-tax and transfer, so to what extent does the government help support folks to, to, to pay the bills and largely through cash, um, the U.S. has an exceptionally high poverty rate compared to these other developed nations. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that that, that is the, the sort of precarity of the modern labor market, particularly at the lower end of the wage spectrum um, does demand this these kinds of these kinds of supports yeah. um, and the last thing i'll say is that, you know is it, an interesting point that your guest brought up around the pandemic was yeah during the pandemic as a result of the fact that people had to stay home it did open up uh the um you know policymakers in many ways had no choice but to move to these cash payments through expanded unemployment insurance and stimulus checks um, to make sure that people did stay home um, uh, for for public health reasons, um, and you know we saw we saw pretty tremendous results in terms of declining poverty mm -hmm. and declining material hardship and a booming economic recovery. Now this is obviously tied in with a whole lot of concerns around you know did it go too far and is that what's driving inflation? That's obviously much more complex than what we need to take on right now. But but the um, the 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 thing that we always have to remember is just how quickly you know how the, both that we avoided vast material hardship through these um, these cash payments, which which could have been possible, obviously during the um, during the pandemic could have been a lot worse economically for a lot of households, and just think about how quickly the economy recovered um, in what could have been a years long recession ended yeah. up being a very brief one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Vanetta, really appreciate the call and the thoughtful comments. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, my biggest concern is probably inflation. I, I like the idea and theory and everything, but 
but I see, you know, people with extra money might be gambling, using drugs. I prefer more, you know, universal um, preschool for everyone, um, universal Internet for everyone, maybe even universal utilities for everyone. Hmm. If, if we can cover the basics for everyone, then they'll, you'll, they'll still work. You'll still, you know, get the things that you need and you'll still have, the, you know, the, the competition and everything that kind of makes our society work well. Hmm. But, you know, people that need diapers, you know, if you're spending $1,000 a month on daycare and then everybody gets $1,000, then it's just going to cost $2,000. It's mm. not, I, I believe it, it's not going to solve. It's an, interesting, yeah, it's an interesting point, Robert, and, and I'm glad you called. I mean, there, there are two points you're making there. One is about inflation and the inflationary effect of this kind of cash infusion, I guess, into the economy. But the second point that you made, and it's one I would take issue with, is the idea that somehow people won't spend this responsibly. I think it's a really dangerous uh, idea to indulge that that we know better how people should spend their money, especially poor people, uh, than, than they do, and, and the assumption that they can't or won't make, make good decisions. But I'll give Patrick Cooney a, a, a chance to answer both of those. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, th thanks for the comment. The, um, you know, first of all, I'll address the sort of the, you know, the not spending it properly. What's interesting, there's there's a there's a group, um, a libertarian leaning sort of think tank called the Scannon Center, who does a lot of great writing on this from the conservative perspective. So a lot of these concerns around will people misspend the money does come um, I think from more from the right. Mm -hmm. And Niskanen does a, um, a great job of kind of writing about the extent to which um, unconditional cash aligns with um, more, more kind of libertarian or conservative principles, um, with the idea being exactly as you said, Stephen, that families know how to spend the money best. Maybe they need to spend it on school supplies. Maybe they need to spend it on utilities. Maybe they need to spend it on car repair but that um, it shouldn't be necessarily be the government um, deciding how, um, how they should spend it. If you look at the data as well, we also know that um, um, prior to, or, or contrary to maybe some, what some critics think people may spend the money on, we actually see so-called vice spending, so spending on, on sort of cigarettes and alcohol, we see that decline for recipients of unconditional cash hmm. And the sort of uh, you know reason this might be happening is not too hard to figure out. Um, if families get a little bit more breathing room, then it may mean less stress, and then therefore um, less need for other potential ways to deal with that stress. And so there's really good data to support the fact that this this by and large this these sort of fears around these kind of vice spending um, doesn't happen. The other thing to to look at again is is because Stephen you mentioned a couple of times, so I just want to address it is the impacts on um, labor market participation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, by and large, we, we don't find any data that shows um, um, uh, at least um, sort of large impacts on labor market, uh, on disincentives to participate in the labor market. So during the child tax credit, um, six months when families received the child tax credit, we saw no impact on families um, kind of participation in the labor force. Um, and there's a lot of other data that shows um, shows a similar thing. And again, um, you can also find sort of instances where, um, and, and definitely a sort of theory behind this, that 
uh, a little bit of extra cash would actually help to encourage labor force participation. Mm-hmm. So if um, if a little bit of extra cash helps you um, put gas in the car to get to work, if a little bit of extra cash allows you to um, avoid rental eviction, so you don't have to, so you can actually you know go to work instead of having to go to a to a court appearance. Um, these things really these things really matter, and so. Um, those those two sort of broad um, ideas around cash is going to keep people out of the labor market or people are misspend cash turns out to not really be well represented in the data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Robert, really appreciate the call and the question. Let's go next to Josh in Beverly Hills. Josh, welcome to the show. Good morning. I'm hey. I'm 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 not surprised that this radio program uh, would present something um, with such clear bias and framing. <laughs> that, okay. Um, we have yeah. So even even the way you present your the language you use is to suggest that this is a solution to poverty. Um, you know, when we have self-reported data by the person to participate in these programs, who say improves their lives, it's no ma- It's not. It's not a surprise. Everybody knows, including your economist, who is um, telling about ten percent of every, every truth he knows because he's clearly a propagandist and not an academic. So when you have self-reported data by participants in a study, that's the least reliable uh, method of gathering data. So we have an economist, a social studies professor, suggesting that someone you give money to is an advocate of receiving money. I'd ask, when we pursue equity programs, like perhaps um, in the Soviet and Chinese totalitarian systems in the last century that were responsible for trying to achieve equity by slaughtering tens of millions of people, if your professor envisions himself to be one of the members of the Politburo who decide who gets money and who gets to give money, because the persons who give money, who work hard, deserve morally to get the, to enjoy the benefits of their labor. And if you take their money and give it to someone else, they're going to be resentful. It's, it's criminal to take, to take the results of their labor. And if you ask the person who you took money from to give to his neighbor, if he would be happier if you get, you let him keep his own money mm-hmm. or his own fruits of his labor, mm-hmm. I'm sure your survey would prove that the answer was yes. So, Josh, so Josh, tell me what what your your answer is here. You don't like obviously you don't like this idea. That's cool. No, this tell me labor, this, this, tell this, me this what idea is is reprehensible. Okay, but, it's immoral, but it's okay. Criminal. So, so tell me what your solution would be to poverty then. Well, I do hear I do hear again. I hear your professor talking about many disparate inf- ideas and information and, and cherry-picks ideas from different conversations, but he's only telling 10% of so, any so tell story. The other, example, the so, Josh, tell me the other 90. Tell me the other 90. Yeah. For, for example, your libertarian advocate of permitting people to spend their own money as, as a retort to the other gentleman. So that that's idea, your solution? That idea, that idea is also... I, 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 can't solve, I can't solve every problem okay. on the phone, and, and universal basic income will create more problems than it, than it solves. It okay. will disincentivize labor. Josh, I, it will cause distortion in the market. It will, it will, it will invite exploitation and perversions in, in the economic okay. system. Josh, I, 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 I do appreciate you listening. I appreciate your calling. Obviously, I disagree with what you're, you're saying, but look, it's a perspective and it's an important part of the discussion. Patrick, I, I want you to address something specific that Josh was saying, which is he's, he's questioning how we know whether this is effective. He's saying, look, if you ask the people who are getting the money, of course, they're going to say it works. But there is other empirical evidence, I think, that we have that suggests this works that is not about opinions of the people who are the beneficiaries of this. 
Yeah, no, that's right, um, Stephen. And and again, I, I can respond to a couple of things here. You know, I, the first thing is just um, uh, it's more than just self-perception data. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, we've been tracking over the past couple of years the um, this material data on material hardship, um, which is um, tracking, you know, essentially, you know, how much money people have to pay for their basic necessities. So this is something that we can think of as a core measure of, um, of essentially poverty. Um, and um, yeah, of course, it's it's no uh, surprise that when people get cash, material hardship drops, right? Um, but the fact that material hardship was so high in the first place in the richest country on earth mm-hmm. um, is, a, is a big problem. Uh, and so, you know, we saw over the pandemic when households did get this more unconditional cash, we saw reports of material hardship um, um, fall by 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 almost half uh, in in certain cases over that period, um, and so you do see um, sort of a lot of um, real sort of you know impacts um, beyond sort of self-reported, which I would argue are, are still still quite important. The, the other thing I wanted to just point out, though, Stephen, just in in response um, to the to the comment, is uh, I you know. Um, Josh was absolutely right that um, a lot of safety net programs can breed resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of one a family on one side of an income spectrum receiving benefits, a family on the other side not receiving it. I think this is one reason why people are calling for something more like a universal basic income um, uh, or a expanded child tax credit or a, um, a child allowance system is that by and large, these are designed to have as broad of um, sort of income qualifications as possible um, so that they do get very close to universality. So this is something, this is a cash floor that everyone gets. It's not sort of picking winning winners and losers. Mm-hmm. This is saying, um, and particularly the case for the child benefit, um, it's, it's basically saying, look, raising children is hard and the government has a responsibility to, um, to both help in, uh, in in raising the children and a sort of societal responsibility to ensure the healthy development of children. Um, and so there is, um, I think that's one reason to to look to policies that have um, kind of as close to universality um, as possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. We're going to come back and keep Patrick Cooney of Michigan Future with us. We're also going to add another voice to the conversation, Kofi Kenyatta, who is with Up Together, the group that is making a proposal for guaranteed income here in the city of Detroit. He'll explain what that is and why he thinks it'll work. We'll also continue to hear from you guys, our listeners, on the phones and on social. Naeem in Northwest Detroit, Dennis in Dearborn, Layla in Detroit, Phyllis and Warren, hang in there. We'll try to get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. Our guest is Patrick Cooney. He's vice president of Michigan Future and a senior advisor with Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan. We've been talking about this idea of universal basic income, recurring cash payments to people to help them make ends meet. It's an idea that's gaining some real traction in the discussion 
about how to eliminate poverty or at least uh, alleviate it. Uh, uh, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social about your ideas uh, about these kinds of programs. I also want to add another voice to the conversation here. Uh, Kofi Kenyatta is the Senior Director of Policy and Practice at Up Together. And Up Together is the group that is making this proposal for $1,200 a month in direct cash payments to some Detroiters. It's called a Guaranteed Income Program. Uh, Kofi Kenyatta, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's first explain to our listeners what exactly Up Together is proposing and how guaranteed income may be a little different from what we have been talking about, which is which is universal income. Absolutely. So Up Together is a national nonprofit organization that recognizes the role that communities and direct cash play in accelerating upward social economic mobility. So we've been demonstrating this since 2001, providing over $135 million to over 200 households uh, across all 50 states, including Puerto Rico. Um, we've invested more than $16 million across families in the state of Michigan. And so the main difference between universal basic income and guaranteed income is that guaranteed income refers to programs that provide a monthly cash payment to a specific group of communities, including those living below the poverty line or AMI, marginalized communities, as well as communities of color. So guaranteed income gives us the opportunity to insert equity into the cash transfer conversation when universal goes to everyone. Hmm. So, Kofi, I think one of the instant questions people might have is how you identify the pool of people who would receive these these cash payments. What what are the what are the criteria for determining who could benefit from this and and who could not? Absolutely. So it, it as Patrick mentioned earlier, um, it varies across city, um, across um, the funder's interest. Um, but as an organization, we recognize that poverty has been created by racist and deficit-based systems. Uh, and so in order to alleviate poverty, we also need equity and community-centered policies and solutions. And so we target and we, we try to target communities that have been negatively impacted um, by systems and practices that have kept them marginalized and under-resourced. Um, and so that may be uh, that may mean uh, targeting individuals that are below a certain wealth threshold, uh, because we know that wealth is a key indicator towards achieving economic mobility or a certain uh, economic threshold, such as the area of median income, because we believe that the federal poverty line is inad- inadequate. Um, you, this is a national nonprofit, and so you have some experience trying this in other places. Can you tell us about places where this has actually made a difference or how it has played out in the in the other work that Up Together is doing? We've been doing this work since 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, and guaranteed income is one policy priority that is aligned with what we call our strength-based approach. And so we are administering guaranteed income pilots um, in cities like Richmond, Austin, Texas, Oakland, California, and a host of other cities. Uh, and as you can imagine, when you provide individuals with access to resources um, and connections, that they are able to utilize that for achieving their basic needs, but also going back to school, um, increasing their health outcomes, and their overall economic and social well-being. And so we don't believe that we should be telling individuals how they should be utilizing the resources. Uh, we believe that we are the experts in our own lives, 
and the flexibility that cash transfers offers our communities allows them to achieve their economic well-being as they deem fit not proposed or suggested by some outside source. Mm. Uh, Last question for you before we get back to our listeners, Kofi. Uh, The money for this. You're proposing that we could use some of the ARPA funds, uh, the federal relief that the city has uh, because of the pandemic to to do this. But of course, that's one-time money and it would run out at some point. So how would you propose to pay for something like this in Detroit uh, over the long term? Yeah, the sustainability question comes up often. Um, and what we're really hoping that the city of Detroit does is join the over 100 cities across the country that are implementing guaranteed income pilots. Many of them that are utilizing public dollars are utilizing CARES Act and ARBA dollars. And so what we really want to do is change some of the negative stereotypes about people living with income and hoping that the city partners with us in doing so, so that we can really build momentum towards state and federal level adoption. And I had to address something from the last caller because that mindset of individuals like Josh is Mm -hmm. something that permeates um, some of our lawmakers. And so I really want to talk about the the legacy cost of poverty. Child poverty costs more than $1 trillion per year. We spend hundreds of billions on families with unstable housing. We spend billions supplementing low-wage jobs. We spend billions attempting to address housing and food security. And a quarter of a million people die every year of poverty and inequity in this country. So I reject the notion that the cost of meaningfully addressing poverty is too high because we know that the price of inaction is much higher. Mm. And too many people, especially black people, pay that price with their lives. And it doesn't have to be that way. Policy is a poverty choice and a budget is a moral document. So we're hoping that not only the city of Detroit, the state of Michigan and municipalities across this country really honor the dignity and respect the people. Yeah. Uh, Kofi, that's a really that's a really important point. The cost of poverty, uh, which people who uh, knock down anti-poverty uh, uh uh, policy solutions as as too expensive never seem to to really account for. Uh, I want to go back to the phones here and uh, get to Naeem in Northwest Detroit. North Naeem, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, Stephen, hey. Uh, Patrick, and Kofi. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I had a. I guess if I had a question, the question would be: What might other systemic alternatives be than paying people. So if it's a systemic issue of poverty, uh, addressing the things that cause poverty rather than giving people money to essentially continue that system of operating. Uh, And I'm also, I would say I'm in support of um, either guaranteed income or universal income. uh, And I'm presuming that taxing the rich might also be an option, rich being, you know, more than, I don't know, $350,000 a year or something like that. Hmm. Um, but I also feel like another component could be educating folks. I know we mentioned that um, the people who need money know how to spend it best, but they I think they can only spend it as best as their experience and knowledge allows them to. And there are ways to potentially be even more. We could all be more effective, including myself, with sure. how we manage money. So having <laughs> some right. type of uh, cultural or systemic shift and educating people in schools on financial management, building wealth, entrepreneurship, um, some type of cultural sure. approach as well to if you do have money and you can meet your ends or make your ends meet, 
um, if you do find yourself with some disposable income, what are ways you could invest it or spend it in ways that allow you to actually build more wealth in Naeem, addition to what's being given. Naeem, great points, and I'm, I'm glad uh, you called and made them. Uh, Kofi, I, I wonder if you can talk about the the greater context of policy solutions here. I mean, obviously, Up Together is working on the guaranteed income issue, but as Naeem points out, there are other things that that cause poverty, and there are other things that we could do differently that would force fewer people into it. I wonder what Up Together's, uh, I guess, portfolio of ideas looks like beyond this. Yeah, we, we can do a few things um, to address poverty. So one would be utilizing um, the resources that we've currently allocated towards poverty allevi- uh, alleviation more wisely. Um, so Michigan does a dismal job in appropriating its ten of dollars for cash assistance. Um, we've also created these penalties and stipulations um, that people can't accumulate certain assets or they can't make too much money. And so that's referring to the benefits cliff. Um, and so as individuals rise and make that upward trajectory towards economic mobility, they are penalized. Um, but also your caller mentioned something that we're also interested in is progressive tax policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we, are, as a country, the richest country on earth, utilizing our resources uh, to benefit the collective? Um, and so one would be utilizing our existing resources towards poverty alleviation more wisely, but also identifying more progressive um, functions such as progressive tax policies to do so as well, as well as a guaranteed income um, at a federal level can definitely work to alleviate poverty. And again, as Patrick mentioned, with the expanded child tax credit um, that reduced poverty um, by over half, is proof in the pudding um, that this is a policy choice that we're making to keep people impoverished, uh, and it's going to take policy and practice shifts in order to alleviate it long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick, we've only got about a minute and a half left, but I want to have you talk as well about other things that wrap nicely, I guess, around these ideas that would also ease the burden of poverty. Yeah, I think there's one thing I wanted to raise, and thinking about it like that at the hyper local level is around um, you know the city's spend down of. ARPA dollars, you know, there's a recently sort of rolled out uh, mortgage assistance program um, for Detroit renters who might want to become homeowners. That's a very interesting um, proposal because we know that a lot of renters on the private market, which most low income households are renters on the private market, they don't receive um, housing vouchers. Um, they are paying far more in rent than they would be in sort of mortgage payments if they were able to get a bit of equity to um, to become homeowners um, here in Detroit, so that's an in, that's an innovative idea mm-hmm. to try and think about how we can stabilize the sort of cost end uh, of of the equation and also potentially build wealth uh, down the road. Okay, uh, Kofi Kenyatta of Up Together. It was really great to have you here with us to talk about this proposal for the city of Detroit. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit today. Thank you for having me. Also, Patrick Cooney, an economist and vice president at Michigan Future. Always great to have you here on the program as well. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Big day today in New York. History being made as a former president of the United States. Donald Trump appears before a judge to be arraigned. 
on criminal charges. Uh, we're going to probably uh, tomorrow have something to say about that and have some guests uh, who will give us some insight into that historic moment. Uh, also remember, if you like this show and enjoy listening, you really ought to share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family and your neighbors. You can do it at WDET.org, or you can always listen to the Detroit Today podcast, which you can download wherever you get podcasts. If you want to read more about Up Together and its proposal for the city of Detroit, just go to bridgedetroit.com. There was a wonderful story there last week about that program. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.